Welcome to the New Mexico in Focus podcast edition for June 26, 2020. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We appreciate you tuning in, joining us this week. And a whole lot on the docket, of course, as always, we are looking at the outcomes from the special session that wrapped up on Monday, quite a wild affair. This is the emergency session to deal primarily with the state budget problems that New Mexico is facing, uh, in part because of oil and gas prices and the hit they've taken, in part because of the COVID-19 pandemic that is ongoing. Uh, In addition to the budget, lawmakers also looked at police reform, and specifically a bill was passed that will require body cameras for police officers, also some election reforms, so that we have a plan going into the general election in November if COVID-19 is still affecting us as it is today. We've got a great line panel in to talk about that. We also continue our conversation about controversial monuments and statues in the state. Last week, we talked to Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller about a protest in Old Town around a Don Juan de Oñate, a famous Spanish conquistador, the statue of him in front of the Albuquerque Museum that protesters wanted torn down. It has now been taken down until a long-term plan can be developed. Unfortunately, you may remember those protests ended up Uh, with a man being shot by an armed individual who came uh, to that protest, um, and that story is ongoing as well. This week, we shift our focus to Santa Fe, where there are uh, several of these controversial statues as well. Another conquistador, uh, Diego Vargas. Also, uh, the obelisk uh, statue that sits in Santa Fe Plaza, It's controversial because um, it describes on the placard Native Americans as savages. So that has become a focal point for a lot of folks in Santa Fe. And that uh, obelisk was actually damaged this week, um, spray painted, and the placard was hit with some sort of a sledgehammer or blunt device and cracked and is really unreadable. We're going to talk to uh, Mayor Alan Weber about his plans for dealing with these controversial historic markers. And we also sit down with the first the state's first ever secretary for the Department of Early Childhood Education and Care. This was a department that was set up, uh, it was the idea of Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham and was set up in last year's regular legislative session. It has not been a department that has existed in the state before. And we're going to sit down with Ellen Gaginski. She is the first secretary to lead that department. We'll find out what exactly her priority list is and how she plans on going about leading this new department. And, of course, we have plenty of COVID-19 updates as well. Feels like a really crucial time for the entire state around COVID-19. After our taping, the governor held her weekly uh, press conference on COVID-19 updates and Uh, Pretty scary, almost a tipping point of sorts in terms of spread rate being back up. And of course, most of the concern revolves around what's going on around New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, all facing massive surges of late. And uh, we are sandwiched in between it all. So we'll talk about that as well. We want to start, though, with that discussion about the special session, how it went, what came out of it, and what work still needs to be done. Host Jean Grant this week is joined by line regular Serge Martinez. Also with us is Merritt Allen of Vox Optima. And 
from the Albuquerque Business Weekly. We've got Rachel Sams. It's great to have her here always, but especially uh, talking about the special session and that focus on the business community and what they are responding to in the special sessions. Here now is host Gene Grant. More than a day, less than a week. The special session ended on Monday with lawmakers taking action on a handful of bills, including budget patches, police reform, and some small business relief. Was it too much? Was it not enough? Here to talk through it is our line opinion panel. I'm joined by line regular and UNM law professor, Serge Martinez. Frequent guest and owner of Vox Optima Public Relations, our friend Merritt Allen is with us as well. And we welcome another guest we haven't seen in a while, Rachel Sams. She's editor of Albuquerque Business First. Let's start with money. Rachel, I'll start with you, specifically the budget bill. You know, the budget bill followed or set the pattern of patching holes and looking not to fix the entire problem, but give the legislature room to maneuver in January. Was that a wise approach? So that is just a really difficult um, tightrope that the legislature had to walk this year. And that was something that you really heard legislators saying once we uh, fix this year and this hole that we're in now, we have to assume that there's going to be another gigantic hole next year. So how can we um, get, help the situation financially the most? How can we do the least damage and get ourselves ready for whatever might happen next? And that's a lot to try to do in three or four days. Uh, so that was definitely a race to the finish. Good point there. Merritt, you know, they're counting those federal dollars, but that only goes so far. One-time cuts, that only goes so far. You know, agencies, state agencies are operating in this environment of, you know, trying to plan to spend. How, how, how sure do they leave the public after this special? Well, I, um, in the intro, you asked, was it too much? Was it not enough? It was both. Okay. Um, I'm so frustrated with the budget. You know, we had $300, $300 million in found money that turned into the early childhood trust fund. Mm-hmm. And now we're gonna patch it with cash reserves. Okay, this is not the time to start a new trust fund. It's a wonderful idea. Uh, now is not the time to cut infrastructure projects because those create jobs. And certainly now is not the time for punishing school district for getting CARES, CARES Act money. That's, I think that's the thing that really upset me most about the budget is, oh yeah, we're counting on federal dollars unless you're a local school district and then we're gonna cut your budget by the amount you got from the feds. I just think that's lousy. What's your sense of next January? Do you have an early feel for it? Because I'm seeing collisions here. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I said dysfunction. I see complete dysfunction. Um, The um, uh, uh, end of uh, John Arthur Smith's tenure as uh, Senate finance chair. Um, I've said, I said this in a recent column, it's really on Republicans. Uh, The Democrats are moving uh, toward a more progressive, uh, which is a more spending, um, uh, mindset mm-hmm. and Republicans can't stamp their feet and wait to be treated fairly. They've got to get the numbers. They've got to get the seats so that they can have meaningful dialogue and get some, and get some bills passed. Good point there. Hey, Serge, um, any sense if the economy is going to bounce back before January? Any, any guesses there? Because that could change the dynamics of the conversation come January one way or the other, meaning if it doesn't bounce back, it's a different conversation as well. But what's your sense of that? I mean, you know, that's the what $1.7 billion question. Um, right. I think, um, you know, I'm, I regret to say that I'm more pessimistic than I was just a couple of weeks ago, having seen sort of, you know, the, the trending numbers uh, around uh, coronavirus and whatnot. 
I was one of the folks who thought, okay, by the fall, we'll sort of be back on our feet and, and things will be getting back into action. They canceled the balloon fiesta. I mean, you know, all signs point to it is really going to get rougher before it gets better. And I'm going to throw the state. Really hope I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. That's right. I was about to say, you got to throw the state fair in there as well as another yeah. financial impact. If that in fact comes to pass, Rachel, I got to ask this one's for you specifically. And that is, I know, you know, this they, uh, there's a package of bills, a $400 million loan program for small business. And that includes lending at half the prime rate up to 75,000 pretty aggressive plan. What's your early take on that? This is going to be really interesting. I don't think there was any way that the legislature would get out of the special session without passing some additional stimulus for businesses. There's just so much outcry from businesses. And there seems to be a lot of support locally um, mm -hmm. from the public to support local businesses. Whether this is gonna be the fix that's needed, that's gonna be interesting to watch these details play out. At the federal level, we've seen with the uh, Paycheck Protection Program loan, you had enormous demand for that because there was so much need with businesses closed, uh, tons of layoffs, tons of jobs lost. You had huge demand for that, a lot of applications, and a number of businesses got it. Then they started to work through the details and say, hey, this is requiring me to keep folks on the payroll while I don't have any demand for my service. Right. This has a lot of difficult um, conditions around forgiveness. So I think that is a big factor. It's putting a lot of business owners in the position. There's definitely a call for more assistance. There's also an anxiety about taking on more debt. Uh, and speaking of what might happen to the economy next, I hear a lot of business owners really concerned that if there is a second wave of coronavirus in the fall and there are a, a repeated shutdowns of businesses, if businesses have to shut down again, what position do, does that leave them in? So I'm seeing business owners doing some complicated math and trying to figure out, okay, if I apply for this loan, if I get it, how do I work through my cash flow so that I can stay solvent and keep from laying off people if I have to shut down again? So it's a wow. tough one. It is. Merritt, I got to get you in on this one too. What I, one of the details I find interesting is it's going to cover up to 200% of average monthly expenses. Um, what, do you, what do you make of that as a business owner? Uh, well, you, you know, I started my business in 2005 and mm -hmm. Uh, the Paycheck Protection Program is the first real shot I've had at no kidding business credit um, in the entire history of my company. Uh, the banking community has always said, well, why don't you just take out a second note on your house? Um, so small business funding has not been there. That said, I agree with Rachel. I don't think New uh, the session could have ended without it, but I'm not sure New Mexico is in a position to do this. We don't have cash and there's not enough return. Um, and I don't think we have the skill set and the infrastructure to ramp up a relief program quickly. If you look at uh, unemployment benefits for independent contractors and that claw back in May, um, I, think, I think it's the right idea. I think, I think it was too rushed. And uh, I, I think that the program is going to be uh, more of a nice idea than something that really builds our economy. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a close watching for sure. Let me, let's get on to, to some election stuff. Serge, I want to get you on this one. Interesting election changes. Clerks can automatically send applications for ballots to voters. But early on, a Senate committee stripped out the part that would have let them send absentee ballots, eliminating a step in that process. And that's what the Supreme Court case was about. What was your sense of that? It, it really was an interesting football to watch being kicked around. Yeah, I mean, I was disappointed because I think the 
the more people who can vote, the better. And anything that we can do to encourage that and facilitate that is what we should be doing as a state. And I've hear, I hear the fear-mongering of voter fraud. Um, that's not proven to be a real thing. Uh, and it is more of a you know, dog whistle for trying to disenfranchise people. And I have, I have no patience for um, trying to make it harder for people to vote. I'm thrilled that the, you know, the clerks can mail out the applications for the absentee ballots. There's going to be some slippage and people who don't you know, know exactly what they're getting or whatever will miss the chance, will miss deadlines. Right? I was extremely disappointed to see all the time spent discussing open primaries, um, which is not going to be an issue anytime soon but still occupied everyone's attention for, mm -hmm. for far too long. Mm -hmm. And I think distracted from the fact that we could make it easier for folks to vote and we've chosen not to. Well, chosen not to make it as easy as possible as it could be. Mm -hmm. You know, Rachel, is no small controversy. One particular legis legislature threw in an amendment to make it easy or allow people same day changes of party affiliation. And it, interestingly, <laughs> Uh, Democrats themselves had a bit of a rebellious moment about that, which I find kind of interesting. Um, are we are we stumbling towards something here? We didn't get it all the way fixed, but there's a lot of heartburn that we even have to, to deal with this during a special sh session that was about the budget, you know, let alone primary issues. Was this the appropriate time to handle this? I just do really think that we are, uh, as a state and as a country, probably evolving more and more in the direction of uh, voting by mail, of less mm -hmm. voting in person. Some states have already been doing that for quite a long time. And as we see more and more that it looks like this period of coronavirus, of isolation and more staying at home and staying away from crowds, it's gonna last a long time. Um, I think it's likely we'll be confronting this issue of how to vote without um, having a ton of people in crowds, not just in 2020. I think it's going to be with us for a long time, and I think we'll be revisiting it um, in terms of how to address it. That's a very good point. Hey, Mary, uh, Senate Bill 8, body cameras, very interesting. 90 days requires police agencies to adopt a policy for body camera use within 90 days and should be specific, specific there. Is that a possibility? What's your sense of it? We've got about just a minute and a click here. What, what do you think? Um, I think for, say, uh, Las Cruces, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, Bernalillo County, Santa Fe County, Doniana County, it's possible. I think for Grant County, for Catherine County, for rural counties, it's going to be very difficult to get the funding and the training uh, uh, in, the, in the time frame. Um, now, uh, a policy in 90 days, yeah, I mean, uh, that can be done, but I, I think that there, that was that was something that should have waited till 2021. It was absolutely pandering to the current mood right now. Mm -hmm. uh, law enforcement and lots of other uh, individuals uh, should have been involved in that discussion. And just talking about the whole structure of the special session, if I can. Sure. Um, sure. It would be very easy to do something better than Zoom. And those products are out there, and they don't cost a lot. And uh, by limiting participation, by going off of Zoom, by not even giving the Republicans the logging code on the first day, um, that really, to me, compromised uh, compromised the session. I have to agree with you. There are other products out there besides Zoom that are more professional, quote unquote, that could have been used here. No doubt about it. All right. We mentioned it earlier, but the, the state has a new cabinet secretary as of 
July 1st. It is Ellen Graginski. She will be heading up the Early Childhood Education and Care Department for the state, really looking at our most young, our youngest and most vulnerable uh, New Mexicans. And our correspondent, Russell Contreras, wanted to catch up with her a few days before she officially takes the job, find out a little bit more about what the department uh, is tasked with and what their plan is and how she plans to lead that department. Here now, Russell Contreras. And before I toss to that, I want to let you know that she spent a little bit of extra time with us as well. We didn't have time for all of it in the show, but we're going to get it to you here on the podcast. So our interview with Ellen Gaginski and a little bonus material as well. Here's Russell. Secretary Boginski, thank you for joining us here on New Mexico in Focus. Thank you, Russell. It's wonderful to be here. So you are entering a new uh, created uh, cabinet position at a time where lawmakers and the state really want to expand on our early childhood education programs and our outreach. What are some of the things that you want to accomplish as you walk in on day one? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing we're so excited, um, I'm so excited and honored really to be able to be the first cabinet secretary for the early childhood education and care department. And the first thing we want to do is really welcome all the new staff coming from these two other departments and set a course for creating a cohesive and aligned prenatal to five early childhood system here in the state of New Mexico. So bringing everybody together, learning about each other's programs, and really looking at the opportunities to both leverage the knowledge that we have and to continue to learn and grow as we set out to really change the trajectory for um, whole populations of families and children across the state of New Mexico. So you uh, left DC, uh, a place that was also struggling with poverty, to come mm -hmm. to New Mexico, which is one of the poorest states in the, in the um, nation. What are some of the things that you want to accomplish in terms of policy off the bat to try to address our poverty, especially among our, um, our youth? Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the things that Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has said from the beginning is she really wants to make sure that families have access to high quality childcare. They have access to preschool education uh, that is of high quality. And so those are definitely two priorities that we wanna make sure are uh, achieved over the course of this uh, first term of this administration. And we know that we can do it because we have incredible partners all over the state in our public schools and our private sector early childhood programs. And so those are some of the, the key priorities that we'll be working on. And we know that when children and families have a strong start and have access to the supports and resources they need, things we can help achieve uh, great things, including breaking the cycle of poverty, uh, helping the health and developmental and educational outcomes of young children. And so that is what this department's mission is to do uh, and to do it in partnership with our other cabinet secretaries and our private sector partners as well. One of the things we have found is that there are some agencies competing against each other and sometimes not utilizing the resources that Head Start provides. One of your duties will be to streamline this process. What are some of the things that you have done in the past that prepare you for this? Yes, I think my history, of course, in early childhood began in Head Start. So I have a strong connection and a strong affiliation with the work of Head Start. Something that we're going to do in this new department, and I, I should have said right out of the gate, we're so excited to have an assistant secretary for Native American early education and care. And she, we're going to put our Head Start State Collaboration Coordinator under her leadership. And we're going to be working across the state with our tribal early Head Start, Head, 
Head Start and childcare programs, uh, but also all of our Head Start programs because we have to leverage all the available funding that could come to New Mexico, whether it's federal money, state dollars, uh, private sector dollars. And we know that Head Start works. It's a program that has proven uh, to help families uh, both achieve great things for themselves and break the cycle of poverty. So we plan to have Head Start uh, very prominent in the office of the secretary, uh, working with our tribal and our non-tribal Head Start, early Head Start programs. The uh, Save the Children Advocacy Group recently released a report um, that said New Mexico is struggling uh, nationally when it comes to um, things like graduation rates, uh, childhood hunger, early childhood deaths. Uh, this is an enormous task for you. So what is at stake that we get all these programs organized and implemented so that we can tackle childhood poverty in our education? What's at stake here? Yeah, I think there, there's a lot at stake and there's a lot of opportunity here. And I think the leadership in this state, both in the legislature and in the governor's office, and again, I can't emphasize enough all the private sector partners that have helped make this department a reality have really, I think what we're gonna be able to do to have programs prenatal to age five under one department, under one governance structure, we're gonna be able to make sure that families have those seamless connections, those transition points where if they're at home visiting, they're learning about their child's development and they're able to uh, connect with our FIT program and maybe we find out that they really need access to childcare. So we're gonna be more seamless in our ability to support families and our ability to work together across this prenatal divide system. One of the things that we have found as early childhood education programs expand, not just in New Mexico, but nationwide, is that the staff for these initiatives tend to be paid less, uh, whether it's in uh, childhood education or daycare or even visiting services. What can be done that, to attract good qualified workers here, but also pay them a good wage that makes this a competitive field for them to get into? Yeah, yeah that's a great question, Russell. And uh, we're really excited that we've seated a new advisory council uh, it was part of the legislation that created the department, and we brought together about 35 or 40 individuals from across the state representing home visiting, early intervention, child care, and they're going to work with us over the next six months to help us answer that question and really think deeply and strategically about what is it going to take and how can we make it happen here in New Mexico. We want people to say, I want to go to New Mexico, I want to work with young children, I want to be part of this movement uh, to really change the trajectory for young children here in New Mexico. Say I'm Andrew Carnegie or Bill Gates, and I come to you and say, I have a limited amount of funds, right? If money is not a factor, what would this department look like and what kind of programs in your wish list would you implement? You know, I think we want to make sure that families have access to childcare if that's what they need, that we have the best early intervention program uh, and just continue to build on that. And that wherever children and families live, their community has the resources and assets they need to support them. You know, families live in communities, children live in families. And so it's about us as a state department, really taking those dollars from Carnegie or Gates, like how, how can we build strong communities that support families so that families can support their children? And that is gonna be everything from our Families First program, which does intensive case management, to our home visiting program that starts prenatally. Uh, these are great opportunities. We know the research is clear. You start a strong at this period of life, 
And we see the outcomes again in health, education, economic outcomes. Uh, so there's a real opportunity here in New Mexico, one of only four departments like this in the country. Uh, so we're excited to be part of that movement. New Mexico is one of the most rural states in the nation. Um, we have a lot of um, our tribal communities live in rural areas. What can be done to make sure that uh, these communities are have have access to some of these early childhood education initiatives and programs? You know, I was planning a whole trip around the state uh, just after the legislature wound up and the and the bill was signed. And of course, we broke right into the COVID uh, public health emergency. And so, you know, I was looking forward to that opportunity to travel around and listen to local community people to hear, what are your ideas? What do you think it's gonna take? Uh, and I think, again, I'll go back to that advisory council and we, we have to make sure that programs and services are informed by families, by the communities in which they live, and that we can't have a one size fits all, but that we have to be able to design programs that meet the needs of families and communities and build on their strengths the culture and the language of New Mexico is so strong. The research is that that early age is so instrumental in the formation of children. Um, what would it look like if they were able to access programs and they're implemented correctly? What would happen to a child that has all those resources by the time they're in middle school or high school? What kind of student would we see? Yeah. We're going to see students who, first of all, are excelling you know, at third grade, they're on track for their reading and their math, they're making friends, they're building good, strong peer-to-peer -peer relationships, they can persist, they attend to their task, and even when things get tough, they struggle through it, they know how to resolve conflict, they know how to collaborate with others. These are some of the important foundational skills and development that happens in these early years. They're gonna continue, they're not gonna drop out, they're gonna understand their value and their worth, uh, continue to graduate. We just had the wonderful report come out of the LFC about our pre-K program here in New Mexico, seeing a $5.82 return for every dollar invested because of improved graduation rates among all New Mexico children and students. So I think those are the types of things we're gonna see when we realize the promise of a strong prenatal to five early childhood system. This was, of course, your first session, the special session just right now. Um, January, there'll be another one. Uh, exactly. We're going to be facing probably some challenging times mm -hmm. uh, budget-wise. Have, have you thought about initiatives in the future that you would like to address legislatively um, that could achieve some of the goals that you've set out? You know, it's a great question, Russell, and I, and I haven't right at this moment, but I think some of the things we're thinking about is how are we going to make sure that we're maximizing all funding available to New Mexico? whether it is through our federal Head Start program, whether it is through other grant opportunities, we know that we're gonna to need to bring more resources into the state uh, to support this period of life. And I think just looking for the opportunities to really align the services and the programs. And so there may be some legislative initiatives that have to happen in order for that alignment to be more seamless for families. Uh, but I'm, you know, we're gonna be, Next week, we're gonna be official and we're gonna be sitting down with an incredible leadership team. I feel so blessed uh, and grateful for just the talented team, experienced team of individuals who are gonna help lead this department into a very solid future. When you're able to travel around the state after this pandemic, what are you hoping to find as you assess uh, what needs further to be done in the state? I think I'm interested to see how uh, different communities approach the same 
um, challenges. You know, they may have the same challenge, but they come together in different ways. When I was the Head Start Collaboration Director for in Colorado under Governor Ritter, I had that opportunity. And that was one thing that struck me going down into the San Luis Valley versus the Grand Junction, the Western Slope. I want to do similarly here in New Mexico and see how does Las Cruces, how do they come together as a community to meet the challenging needs or up in, uh, I did have a chance to visit Taos, but over in Hobbs, Carlsbad, down to Deming and Silver City. I'm excited to see just what is it that people bring together and how can we as a state department foster that and nurture that and really build a strong community to state connection. Secretary, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you. you coming out. Thank you, Russell. I really appreciated being here and thank you for helping us launch and celebrate the new department. Secretary, thank you for joining us again here on New Mexico in Focus. Thank you, Russell. It's wonderful to be here. You have dedicated your life to early childhood education. You now find yourself in New Mexico uh, as secretary of a new department. What keeps you up at night uh, as you tackle issues around early childhood education? You know, Russell, I think that's a great question. Um, I think I want to just make sure that we are able to really capitalize on all the wonderful things that are happening here in New Mexico and building on the incredible work that's happened here over the last two decades. I think nothing really keeps me up except that, you know, I'm impatient, so I want to see things, you know, move rapidly, but I see it. I mean, over this pandemic, this public health emergency, the outpouring of community and support and connection has been really overwhelming and has really helped us manage through this. So I feel so hopeful about the work ahead uh, that it doesn't, nothing really keeps me up, but just that sense of excitement of what we can actually accomplish for families and young children. Like many New Mexicans, I have a uh, young toddler. She's three years old. Oh. If she were, we're going to enter a, a good program for uh, someone of her age, in an early childhood education setting, what would an ideal program look like for her? Yeah, I mean, you're gonna see rich relationships. So the teachers and you are gonna have an incredible relationship. They're gonna really respect you and wanna understand what your hopes and goals and dreams are uh, for your daughter. Uh, she's gonna have lots of opportunity to explore and on her, on her own interest, uh, but really it's gonna be about strong relationships. The teacher's gonna, know her, going to know where she's at developmentally, emotionally, and she's going to help her continue to grow from where she is in very intentional ways, but also through creating environments where she can explore on her own. I mean, children, as you know, you know, every day you must just be amazed at what she is <laughs> able to learn and do. And so rich with language, rich with experiences, uh, those would be the kind of things we'd want to see in a, in a quality early childhood setting and environment. In a, in a good department that has it's fully funded and has the support, um, what would it look like for somebody who is interested in this field to join it to be in an ideal setting to make it a career? What is your vision for someone who is thinking about as a UNM student or New Mexico State student yeah. thinking about jumping into early education as, as a career? Yeah. Why should they jump in this field? Oh, because they can be part of a community, an incredible community of learners, and also to just be there to, uh, I just actually was at the UNM Children's Campus. I stopped by there and got to finally see and hear the work they do of bringing young students in and 
how they get really, they get excited when they learn about what their role is as a teacher in shaping a young person's future educational and health and all their outcomes. So I think people, we want them to come, we want them to be excited about early childhood care and education and to really be change makers. Um, you're gonna be supporting families at their most vulnerable time. Families are, you know, especially right now through the pandemic and the public health, they're wondering, should I take my child to care, shouldn't I? And here are these incredible young professionals giving them the assurance, respecting them as parents, um, appreciating their values and what they're bringing into the field. And so I think it's a place where you'll be supported. Um, you'll always be learning. You'll always be growing and you will be transforming in chil uh, children's lives and supporting families in very important and critical ways. And how will you be measuring yourself uh, in terms of accountability? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a great question. I think we want to be very transparent. We want to make sure that uh, the community knows uh, exactly what we're doing and how we're prioritizing the budget that we have, how we're prioritizing our communication. And so we'll be, and also looking at my own, the, our own staff in the department. You know, are they staying? Are they feeling well supported? Do they feel connected to our mission and part of a larger team and a larger purpose? Um, of course, the legislature was a very important stakeholder and the governor will be the ultimate uh, decider. If, uh, But we hope that what we're doing to create this department is going to really be something that we all do together. And of course, I have a key signature role as the secretary in making that happen. But it is going to be all together New Mexico in making the early childhood education and care department a huge success. Secretary, thank you for joining us for this extra special on New Mexico in Focus. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Russell. It's been a pleasure. Such a difficult topic uh, to come up with uh, ideas and solutions around that, that makes everybody happy or at least um, everybody can appreciate and, and live with. And that's what to do with the controversial monuments and statues that are in our state. This is a problem that uh, started really with uh, Confederate statues and monuments in the southern uh, part of the United States. But New Mexico has our own share of these. There's even talk of changing names of schools and roads here in New Mexico as we try to um, deal with the, the uh, trauma, the historic trauma created by these histories and how they're presented sometimes in our state. And that's definitely true in Santa Fe. And this week, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we're talking to Santa Fe Mayor Alan Weber about his approach to these sorts of monuments in Santa Fe. And we want to let you know that uh, just as with Secretary Guginsky, we took a few more minutes with the mayor afterwards to talk to him about this idea that decisions made about controversial monuments and statues has to have winners and losers and what he thinks about that approach to coming up with positive solutions about this. They're going to talk uh, about the obelisk statue, which I mentioned, which was vandalized this week. And after we talked to the mayor, he did announce that they were going to uh, build uh, structures, panels around the obelisk and use that as a rotating public art space in Santa Fe. That's his temporary solution until a long-term solution has been found. But Alan uh, Weber, mayor of Santa Fe, sits down with correspondent Gwyneth Dolan now. Hope you enjoy. Mayor Weber, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Last Tuesday in Albuquerque, there was a protest over the Onyate statue in Old Town and someone was shot. 
How did what happened in Albuquerque impact your decision-making process about how to proceed with these kinds of monuments in Santa Fe? You know, I saw what happened in Albuquerque and I've seen what's been going on all over the country. And the subject of monuments, the subject of uh, art in public places and the subject of historical trauma is the moment we're in. And uh, I believe then and I believe now that Santa Fe has an opportunity building on the experience we had when we, uh, when the Caballeros uh, courageously voted to retire the Entrada and we signed a historic proclamation uh, in September of 2018, that there is a, a foundation for healing and reconciliation. Uh, but there is so much passion, anger, uh, sadness, feeling of loss or feeling of celebration that it's very difficult to create the space for a uh, conversation around truth and reconciliation. Uh, I certainly put avoiding violence and any hurt, harm to any individual as my highest priority. There is no statue or monument that is worth one single human life as far as I'm concerned. Uh, beyond that, I think it is uh, across America and in Santa Fe a time for reckoning with the past, facing the past, and then using that as an opportunity to face the future and create the kind of healing and reconciliation that I believe we have uh, the opportunity to create now. You know, in 2017, then Mayor Javier Gonzalez initiated an inventory of the, of the city's monuments. It wasn't, it wasn't quite finished or presented. Why didn't you pick it up and finish it? Yeah, well, what I put in the, in the forefront of my work as mayor was the uh, urgency of dealing with the Entrada. We had had uh, an episode in the, uh, before I became mayor where there was near violence on the plaza where there was a very serious confrontation uh, and my belief was that before we would talk about monuments or objects, we ought to talk about this annual event, this, this uh, part of the uh, fiestas of Santa Fe, and resolve it. And it took a year. It took meeting regularly with a group of very, very well-intentioned and heartfelt individuals representing uh, the archbishop and the, uh, and the uh, uh, Native American community, the leaders of Fiesta and Caballeros and, and me as mayor with some staff help. Uh, we met more than once a month to talk about uh, shared values and shared history and shared pain. And it led to a, a very uh, moving ceremony. Well, let me ask you this. Is there a way to display a statue of the Conquistador de Vargas or a monument to Kit Carson in a way that, uh, you know, appeases this diverse group of stakeholders um, in a way that the Entrada Compromise did? Yeah, I do believe that what we need to get to, now that we've got the work in front of us of truth and reconciliation, is to take the list that uh, Mayor Gonzalez created and put it into context of the serious engagement that's happening around America right now to face our, our history as a country. And it just tells me there's a breadth of discussion that needs to be had. I think in Northern New Mexico, we're farther ahead than almost any other part 
of the country. Because we are a family, we have had history that we've come to terms with. We have had a lot of reconciliation, but it's really important to grab it onto this moment. So the monuments are less important to me than the conversation they create. I believe ultimately to answer your question directly, I think uh, a truth and reconciliation commission will go through that list and figure out what and what to do, what to add. Do we need some new monuments that are not about conquest and victory, but are about learning and uh, living with each other? I personally have heard great ideas and I endorsed one uh, that we could create a new museum in Santa Fe, a, a Truth and Reconciliation Museum. You know, one of the monuments at issue in Santa Fe is that obelisk uh, dedicated to Kit Carson, who was a 19th century frontiersman, you know, occupied some of the storm, uh, same place in lore as uh, Teddy Roosevelt, as this sort of mythical character who was much greater than life, but a hero for many people who read those books generation after generation. Um, he fought on the Union side in the Civil War. He bragged about the violence and killing of Native Americans while he was a trapper. He participated in what critics say is a genocide of Native Americans, especially the Apache and the Navajo. You said the other day, there's more than one version of history. But, you know, we saw in the paper the other day, an activist with the Red Nation Freedom Council said that was ignorant, that there's no question this country was built on stolen land. Is there room in between those things? Well, I didn't see that quote, but I, and I'm more than willing to plead ignorance um, if that's the, the way that I can make things calm down. I, I believe as a student of history uh, and somebody who loves Northern New Mexico history and have a a bookcase like the one behind you filled with books about northern New Mexico in history of our community, including what's purported to be the autobiography of Kit Carson, uh, that there is more than one version of history. There are histories that belong to individuals. There are histories that belong to segments of our community. Uh, and those histories are all true and they need to be respected. You know, this is an exceptionally painful debate for a lot of Santa fans who are fiercely proud of their Spanish heritage and who see that as not getting the attention it has deserved in these larger pictures. Um, and, you know, a lot of these folks fear that their history is being erased and removing, for example, the statue of Vargas, you know, does that contribute to an erasure of that history? Well, there are some competing, uh, you talked about narratives and I talked about stories. There are competing narratives right now. And I think we need to listen and then try to uh, make the words we choose very uh, purposeful. Nobody's interested in erasing history. That's, I don't even know how you do that. Uh, I don't know what that means. I think history is a living part of how we, uh, how we go through our days together. Particularly, but it's the argument that by erecting a statue that praises Kit Carson, um, that you are erasing the part of history that reflects negatively on him. No, I think um, that's why I say I don't think you can. If you move a monument, you don't erase history. I think you erase the provocation of a monument. 
my friend, Councillor Abeda on the uh, city council who has a very long history in uh, Santa Fe in Northern New Mexico says his attachment as a Hispanic family in Santa Fe isn't connected to a monument. It's connected to what he teaches his kids about their values. It has to do with the music they listen to and the food they eat and the, the, the uh, ceremonies they observe, the spirituality, the, the religion they participate in. And a monument is a thing. A culture is not attached to a thing, nor is a history attached to a thing. So my, I would tell you, my, my intent of uh, calling for the removal of these objects was, number one, to respect this moment we're in where we're called to face ourselves. Number two, to protect lives and property, which I put above any one monument. Number three, to try to create a space where these conversations can take place, where we don't focus on the object, we focus on the values, the community, the families, uh, the shared sensibilities, and then try to move toward the future, which is the legacy we want to leave for our kids and grandkids about how in this moment of national choice, we chose to make things better. There was a situation um, in Santa Fe where on Monday, the owner of the India, India Palace restaurant walked in to find his restaurant nearly destroyed, defaced with the most horrifying racial slurs white supremacist uh, slogans and iconography. Um, you know, this Santa Fe is not immune from these things. Violent white supremacists appear to be in Santa Fe. How do you deal with them? Well, I just got off the phone with uh, Mr. Brown, who was the young uh, man who uh, went at the owner's request to see what the damage was. And I told him, I think this kind of hate crime is abhorrent and uh, completely beyond, uh, beyond the pale of anything that's acceptable. It's completely unacceptable to all of us in this community. There will, I'm sure, be people who uh, will say it's, it's emblematic of more, but I think it's, it speaks to the fact that you're right. There, are, there will be people in every community who want to incite violence and who come from a place of hate. And there are so many more people in Santa Fe who are coming from a place of love and compassion. There's already a GoFundMe uh, site that's been set up to make up the more than $100,000 worth of damage that was done to the restaurant. It's a Sikh family that has been here for a long time. They even use their restaurant to feed homeless people out of their own pockets. This is a deeply caring family that is deeply part of our family. And so, I think what you'll see is a uh, community that stands up as one to repudiate that kind of hate crime and to do everything to embrace the family and tell them that we care about them and we love them and we want to help them. On Monday, the Civil War era obelisk on the plaza was damaged with a sledgehammer or something like that. Part of the inscription was broken off. It's, it's almost hard to read now. Is it still there? The obelisk is there. Um, the uh, statue of uh, de Vargas has been put away for safekeeping to make sure nothing does happen to it. Uh, and so that it can be part of the ongoing conversation about how we would put these objects into a place where they can be part of a conversation rather than an object. Why now, is the obelisk still there? 
Well, the op, for a number of reasons, um, there's a, my, my, uh, the um, proclamation that I put out, an emergency proclamation called on the city manager and the city attorney to look into the actual legal steps that would be taken in order to remove the obelisk. It has a la- there are layers of the law that are involved with something that is in a federal uh, area of protection with state uh, oversight, with city oversight. Uh, and so uh, rather than the city simply uh, moving to remove it uh, unilaterally, we are ob- observing the legal requirements to go through the steps to see what it will take to safeguard it as well. We may end up putting more art in public places, more statues, more statements, but rather than having them be about victory in battle, they become statements about community or uh, education or shared values or shared experiences. Mayor, a lot of people seem to feel about this like there are winners and losers. Yes, we got the statue removed, we won. Or no, the statue was removed, we lost. How can you break out of that? Uh, That to me is a really important question. Thank you for asking. I think there is a very false perception that the moment we're in actually has winners and losers around whether it's a statue or a change in uh, in a holiday, winners and losers makes it look like it's a zero sum game. And I said on the up on the plaza when I was there, uh, where where there was the celebration, um, where there is racism, we're all losers. Where there is reconciliation, we're all winners. If you start keeping score about who won a particular argument over our history, it misses the point that is it is a much more unifying activity to try to find our common values rather than to keep score of winners and losers. So I don't think winning and losing has anything to do with this moment we're in. I think we're looking for a way to live better with each other. There's an old saying, an eye for an eye leaves everybody blind. And that's not the outcome we want. What we really want is honesty about our history and then reconciliation for our future. And there is no winning and losing. Where there is reconciliation, there's only winning. So I would really appreciate all parties uh, standing down from the winning and losing rhetoric and instead look at how do we have a dialogue that works better for everybody. Back to the line panel now. Again, Serge Martinez, Merritt Allen, Rachel Sams, they all joined Gene, and they're talking next about COVID-19 and specifically what I mentioned earlier in terms of the precarious situation that New Mexico finds ourselves in, where most of the states around us are all suffering mightily with surges in COVID-19 cases. Um, A lot of them opened up sooner, especially Texas, and have now had to actually roll back some of their opening of businesses and public spaces and things. And there's only so much, of course, that Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham can do about what other states do, but there's a lot of um, consternation and concern about what the impacts will be here in New Mexico. After our uh, taping, the governor held a weekly press conference and said that there was she was basically putting a pause on any further opening in the state, the spread rate is a little higher than it had been. 
we're still doing pretty well, especially compared to those other states, but she wants to take all due caution in how we approach this in New Mexico, and it really feels like the next couple weeks are going to be crucial to see which direction we head in in New Mexico. But uh, the challenges are real, especially for businesses, uh, for frontline workers, and the line panel weighs in on all of that now with host Gene Grant. Welcome back to the line. One note before we get started, after we recorded that interview with Mayor Weber, the mayor announced plans to build a temporary box around the Plaza Obelisk and use it as a community art installation. All right, there's been so much happening that it's not hard and it's maybe even tempting to forget about COVID-19, but the disease continues to circumscribe the boundaries of our daily lives, no matter how hard some try to ignore it. Cases in neighboring states like Arizona and Texas have ballooned beyond What's to be expected from more testing? We're here. To, we're talking with the line ahead of a planned news conference by the governor. But regardless of what she says, New Mexico seems pinched. We can't control Texas or Arizona or Utah or any other states with ballooning cases near us. Is our biggest threat people from other states, or is our non-mask wearing, anxious to see family and friends selves, the situation? Rachel, what's your thought on that? All of the above. Mm. Uh, the reporting from some of the uh, folks who have gone out and talked with, uh, particularly tourists in Santa Fe, is really catching my eye. Um, mm -hmm. There's been a lot of tourists, particularly flooding into Santa Fe, not wearing masks. Uh, there have been some interesting interviews from um, different news organizations with them. Uh, there was one interview that I saw with a, a person, a fellow who was here from Arizona. And when asked why he wasn't wearing a mask, he said, it's optional in Arizona. And <laughs> I mean, as a citizen of the world at this time in our history, you know, basic responsibility, know what you got to do when you get there, wherever you're going and do it. So seeing these surges of cases on both sides of New Mexico, um, in Texas and in Arizona is very concerning. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, you're seeing people, um, human nature ready to go out and move around and it is really, um, it's really not time to just uh, go wild out there. We have a long, it seems like we have a long way to go, even to get through the first wave, let alone to face or deal with a second wave. Good point. Hey, Rachel, staying with you for a quick sec on this. Businesses, of course, are bearing the brunt of this. Frontline employees are absolutely bearing the brunt of this, having to tell people to put a mask on and getting accosted when they're, you know, the whole thing. But it seems, you know, for the, this next little period of time, perhaps retailers and others are going to have to really step up their game a little bit because there has been a little bit of slippage when you go into retail places about who's wearing masks. You see what I mean? Everyone's sort of slipping just a little bit here and there. What's your sense of that as well for, for business owners? Yeah, that is a, that's a tough one. Um, you have, of course, we have a mask mandate here. If we're out in public, we need to be wearing them. So uh, businesses that are open right now, um, that's very much a responsibility that they're facing. At the same time, business owners are seeing reports all over the country where in businesses where an employee tries to enforce that with certain customers, there have been customers who've gotten violent. So now on top of dealing with, you know, staying open during a pandemic, sanitizing every five minutes, all of the things that you have to do to operate a business right now that are different from three months ago, you're worried about your own employees' safety. So that is a tough line to walk. Yeah. Hey, Serge, when you think about it, bars, movie theaters, bowling alleys, the list is long. 
you know, this is serious business. If, if we're not going to participate in keeping ourselves and our fellow you know, citizens healthy, where does that put the governor in, her, in the choices she has to make? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't envy those choices, but I think she's, her message, uh, I've actually thought was reasonably effective in saying, look, this is not just my decision. This is all, you know, what happens depends on how New Mexicans respond to, to this situation and how we decide to stay home, to wear masks, to do whatever. But, you know, we, last time I was on, we talked about sort of the question of are there winners, are there losers, and how are they being chosen um, here, right? And no matter what the science says, no matter what the public health folks say, this is being, will be perceived as, I choose to anoint this industry and choose to you know, condemn this industry and consign them to, to really rough times. And I think, you know, I, I am not, and I don't wish I could switch places with her on, the, on those particular points, but I do think it is really important to, to not listen to that, uh, the, the voices of, you know, well, you're playing favorites when what we really need to do is focus on science, focus on the public health um, recommendations and really be clear on why we're doing this and the value of, of you know, taking a few hits now, massive, major, unbelievable hits now, so it's not worse or prolonged or whatever down the road. Yeah. And so I push back against, you know, this industry is the winner and this industry is the loser. It's bad. It's, it's bad all around, but, you know, unfortunately, these aren't... Uh, it's not a popularity contest. That's right. And everyone sees it their own way on who should be allowed. That's for sure. I, you know, yeah. we're all human that way. Merritt, interestingly, the big news of the week is a public education department released their plans for going back to school. It's a hybrid model. Instructions, you know, by August 1st, split students into two groups, alternate instructions be in, between in-school and remote learning. And if I have this right, Wednesdays are closed for, for cleaning. What's your initial thought on, on the school plan as you read it? I see it. I see it highly problematic um, mm -hmm. uh, for for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, Portales is not Albuquerque, and Clayton is not Gallup. So you have different threat levels in different counties and different districts. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, mm -hmm. um, remote learning is not equitable in our state because of the lack of broadband. Right. And so rural communities are going to basically lose a day of schooling. What that also means is parents are going to um, lose a day of work. And I think it's going to really impact women in the workforce who, by habit, by preference, by culture, are tend to be the primary caregivers. And this is going to uh, hurt uh uh, women participate, women's participation in the workforce. And as a couple of my teacher friends have said, how in the heck are you going to keep a mask on a kindergartner? That's going to be interesting to see. There's no doubt on that. Um, Rachel, interestingly, uh, teachers and staff, I'm hearing from a lot of teachers and staff, and they are nervous. They are really looking at us going, you know, <laughs> I'm being exposed to two different groups here. Right. You know, it's going to be really problematic. What can what can PED and the governor, everybody in APS or anybody else, say to a uh, you know a frontline staff person at this point to make them feel better about it? Oh, there's just so many uh, difficult uh, quandaries with this plan and this effort. Um, and I, I do wonder if ultimately, as we get closer, because there's a lot of time between now and August 12th if this plan might change and if there might be a need to even at some point um, go totally remote again, um, at least for a period of time. Uh, a couple of things that I think about with this, 
one, I think that a lot of work and creativity had to go into even addressing this plan. So that's definitely something to keep in mind. Two, um, we already have had a uh, finding in court that we're not meeting the needs of all of our students and giving them a fair education, um, particularly our students of color, students from low-income families. So if that's not happening when they're in the classroom, it's hard to imagine how that is going to work in this kind of hybrid learning world. Uh, so that's definitely a big concern right now. Good point there. Serge, what have we learned about distance learning here in New Mexico during this first part of this pandemic? Are, are we... Obviously, it's not optimal. We, we know that Merritt made a good point. We don't have broadband everywhere. But have we learned something about how we do distance learning here so far? Uh, I mean, in terms of you know, access, there's a whole host of other of issues as Merritt raised. But in terms of its effectiveness, I think the primary lesson we've learned is we need to learn how to do it. Um, there, you know, the, the data that I've seen suggests that it wasn't particularly effective. And that's not surprising when all of a sudden we took everybody who's been trained to do in-person learning and said, now you're a distance teacher. And now to students, you're a distance learner. You know, I, here at the, at the law school, we treated the last couple months of our semester as just trying to get through this rough situation and everybody was, was doing what they could. But now as we approach a new semester coming up in the fall, when we're all gonna be back here, we've, my colleagues and I, I think have realized we really need to figure out how to do this if we're going to be effective. And, um, you know, there are so many, it's, it's a very different ballgame in terms of the actual pedagogy, as well as the technology, the access, the, you know, the content and whatnot. Mm -hmm. It is, it's a huge, huge uh, left turn. And um, all the data, like I said, that I've seen suggests we weren't particularly effective at it as educators uh, at the end of the last school year, maybe over the summer we can all up our game and figure out how to do it or get the resources needed to be able to, to be effective at it. The magic R word, resources. That's right. right. <laughs> it's gonna cost money to fix this, but it's no joke. I mean, we, we're staring at a situation where underserved in uh, kids who don't come from families, in other words, who have all the things you need, broadband, caring parents who might be educated themselves, we could be in a situation we've got an entire school year sort of lost for some of our students, and that's really not a good situation for any of us. Staying on the COVID-19 front, we mentioned the states around New Mexico and the struggles they're having with COVID-19 and outbreaks in their communities, and that's definitely true in Arizona as well. And we were lucky enough this week to catch up with a Journalism alumnus from New Mexico, Andrew Oxford. You may remember him from his great work at the Santa Fe New Mexican. But Andrew is now at the Arizona Republic. And so he's been reporting on COVID-19 issues there in Arizona and has great insight on how they are now finding themselves up against it with their backs against the wall with massive surges in COVID-19 cases there. He's also reported on the trip uh, to Arizona this week by President Donald Trump. And uh, some thoughts about that as well. He sits down with correspondent Laura Paskus in our continued series of checking in with journalists around the state and around the region on the impacts of COVID-19 and the great work that those journalists are all doing day in and day, day out. Big shout out to them. Right now, it's Andrew Oxford. Andrew, former reporter with the Santa Fe New Mexican, and before that, the Taos News, you're with the Arizona Republic right now. Welcome back. It's really great to see you. 
Um, President Trump came to Arizona this week. As you have reported, this was his third visit in five months. Why was he in the state and who was there to listen to him? Arizona is obviously going to be a battleground in November, right? And the president has work to do here in terms of winning back voters. We've seen Joe Biden leading in Arizona in recent polls. And so on top of that, the president has spent the last several months, right, mostly on defense about issues that he's really not, I think, in a lot of ways necessarily comfortable talking about. You've had the coronavirus You've had nationwide protests against racism, police brutality specifically. Those aren't really his issues. Uh, And so I think that coming back to Arizona was a way for him to try to refocus his campaign, try to make it look more like the campaign of 2016, you know, visit the border, have this sort of large crowd uh, speak to them about many of the same things he would have spoken to them about four years ago. I think it was an attempt to really kind of uh, refocus things and put them back on on his terms. You and your colleagues um, have been reporting on Arizona's rising COVID-19 numbers, hospitalizations, cases, all on the rise. What happened in Arizona? Yeah, we've seen... uh, new records every day for the number of people hospitalized and in hospitals with the coronavirus. We see rising numbers of cases, uh, you know, that we've really seen public health officials who a month ago were at least state officials trying to sell the end of a stay at home order as something timely and something that the state could handle to really trying to, I think, punch the brakes right now and urge caution. Arizona had a stay-at-home order in effect from late, it was late March through mid-May. And, you know, it was fairly permissive, I think, not just legally. It did have a day-to-day effect. You didn't have people crowding into restaurants. Big events were canceled, things like that. But I think there was also a muddled message about what exactly the point of the order was. It was called stay home, stay healthy, stay connected. But what were people... I think a lot of people had questions about, well, does everyone need to be worried? Is it older people who need to be worried? Is it people who are immune compromised who need to be worried? Should we all just stay home? Is it okay if I go do this or go do that? I think the state really muddled the message at the outset. And then when support began to fall apart politically for this approach, you know, we have a Republican governor. He faced a really kind of internal revolt within his own party over this, you know, he ended up lifting it in, in mid-May, I think, under a lot of pressure. And since then, again, I think we've just had a lot of confusion among people of, well, what exactly is the threat here? And I think that's only been compounded by political leaders who have uh, sought to downplay this altogether, who have suggested that COVID-19 isn't really a problem or isn't something that people need to worry about. I think the public's just been rightly confused by a lot of people that they would ordinarily look to for clarity on this. Right. So let's talk about testing. How easy is it to get a test if you need one or want one in Arizona? You know, I saw when New Mexico was rolling out drive-through testing. Um, I don't think we had anything like that yet in Arizona at that point. We were slow to get initiatives like that going. The state has since ramped up testing, but, you know, it kind of depends how, how it goes kind of depends on who you ask. I've heard from some people who said, you know, they got an appointment at a clinic, showed up, were in and out in 10 minutes. 
I have a friend of mine who sat in line for 13 hours uh, waiting to get a test. And that was in an area that is, you know, underserved as it is a predominantly Latino neighborhood. Uh, so I think it kind of depends where you are. I think it depends on the resources that you have. And I think the state has certainly been slow to, to ramp up this process. So in terms of looking at who has really been affected by COVID-19, do you see, are there specific pockets or parts of the state or populations? Um, what's happening with that? Yeah, similar to New Mexico, we saw really some of the hardest hit areas at first, you know, on the Navajo Nation. Uh, now we have seen cases really increasing in Maricopa County, our big urban center, you know, Phoenix and its suburbs. Uh, we've also seen in cases increasing along the border in border communities like Nogales. Uh, so we're seeing kind of different areas affected at different times, but I think that there is a, again, uh, kind of a theme that we've seen across the country where, you know, you're seeing a lot of cases among people who maybe they have jobs where they can't work from home. Uh, they're service industry workers, they're frontline workers, or you're seeing increases in cases where, uh, you know, maybe housing isn't as readily available and as adequate as it should be. So you're definitely seeing, I think, the brunt of this fall on communities that are, are already underserved. Local governments and certainly universities in Arizona have made some pretty big cuts. You reported recently that the state budget doesn't look as bad as maybe lawmakers had feared. Can you talk a little bit about the budget and what legislators are expecting over the coming months, maybe? Yeah, so we went from uh, expecting at least about a billion dollar shortfall uh, between this fiscal year and the next fiscal year to maybe around $700 million. That's nothing that's not good, but it, you know, we're looking at problems that I think state policymakers think that they can handle at least in the short term without making big cuts. And a lot of that stems from uh, Arizona's tax base, right? We've seen things like retail taxes and some sectors of retail haven't really fallen off as much. People are still going to the grocery store, right? Uh, where we have seen revenue really decline is in areas like tourism, you know, this hit at a time of year when it's actually a very pleasant time to visit Phoenix. And a lot of people were canceling conferences, canceling big events. And that certainly took a hit. National parks, I'm sure this summer will be quieter. But Arizona is not a, a resource dependent state in, in the same way as New Mexico. Everything is not riding on oil here. We're not not quite as, as attached to those kinds of commodity market changes. So I think state policymakers see that, you know, if people are still out buying groceries, if people are still out, you know, shopping, where, whether that's online or elsewhere, that maybe we're not going to take quite as big a hit as we would have feared if everything had just, uh, if maybe the, the shutdown had been much stricter or, or much more protracted. Well, thank you, Andrew. We certainly miss you reporting on New Mexico, so it's really nice to have you on the show this week. Good to see you again. Going to leave you this week with some final thoughts from Jean Grant, really building on what we've been talking about in terms of the crucial time period we're in with COVID-19. And uh, the next two weeks are going to tell us a lot about which direction we're going to go in, whether we're going to be able to open up even further or whether we actually end up having to go backwards and close down more 
back to what we had a few weeks ago. So before we do that, we want to remind you about a couple things. That's to follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Go find us. Go follow us. Go let us know what you like about the show, what you don't, what topics you want us to tackle. We'd love to hear from you. If you're not already a member of the Focus on New Mexico Facebook group, we encourage you to do that too. That's a great way to really engage with other viewers on the show and exchange ideas of stories and provide us feedback. And we often call on folks from the Focus on New Mexico group to join us for Facebook Lives as we talk about that. We're looking right now for people who want to talk about the plan that was released this week for how school is going to roll out next year. They're calling it a hybrid model of online or virtual and in person. I know it has a lot of parents and staff members and educators concerned. No easy way to do this, but we'd love to hear from you if you've got thoughts on that want to be involved. also want to make you aware of a cool thing coming next week. That is a special podcast series we're doing, a short-run podcast that looks at the history of the women's suffrage movement in New Mexico. Probably already know, but 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote in New Mexico and across the U.S., American Experience on PBS has two nights of programming all about the history of the National Women's Suffrage Movement. That's July 6th and 7th coming up, 8 p.m. both nights. We encourage you to watch that. We encourage you to look out for the podcast. We've got a preview of what's to come. Uh, That's already up there. You can find it wherever you find your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere, the likely subjects, likely places you go for your podcast. And they're going to release on Tuesday. Also next week, a great opportunity for you to be a part of a special screening where we will preview about an hour of the American Experience show on women's suffrage. It's called The Vote. And then we'll also be delving into some of the topics in our podcast, New Mexico and The Vote. Host Megan Camrick will join us. She's got some special guests, all to talk about the interesting history around women's suffrage in New Mexico, which was really unique in a lot of ways and very inspiring. The podcast will also be dedicated to looking at gender equality today, where we've come since women got the right to vote, and where we still need to do a lot of work. It's going to be a great series. Love working with Megan. Love her work. We hope you will go and find that podcast wherever you can. If you want more about that uh, virtual screening, you can head to Facebook, or you can head to our website, NewMexicoPBS.org nmpbs.org, and right on the front page, there's um, an image there you can click on and get registered for that event. We encourage you to do that. We'll have more on this next week on the show as well. But for now, we hope you have a terrific weekend. You stay safe, you stay healthy, and again, we'll leave you tonight with a little bit of final thoughts from host Gene Grant. Earlier this week, I caught the congressional hearing focused on the coronavirus response to date. Two things struck me. One is my renewed faith in science, and especially scientists. It's not a vaccine around the corner, but that's not from a lack of effort. At some point, the scientists are gonna have their say and not the policymakers. The other takeaway was the words of Dr. Fauci himself, who said these next two weeks are critical in the fight to flatten the COVID-19 curve. What became clear is it's also a critical two weeks for Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. We are in a vice between Arizona and Texas two states with rising numbers and the potential to possibly impact the good work done here to date. We're witnessing the results of the Memorial Day weekend festivities 
It seems a new case has to be made between now and July 4th weekend if we're to come out of these next two weeks in better shape. So let's stay diligent. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus.